everyone and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Here we are in December. I don't know about you, but I always find December a month of acceleration towards the end of the year with so many things left undone despite my internal want to be organised. And so when we get the chance to feel a little bit of happiness from whatever entity, we need to soak it up. And hopefully my guest today can do that for us in terms of tantalising tastes and the wonders of cooking and food. It's Anne Faber. Welcome. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a delight to finally meet you. I feel like I know you through my friends and through all of the work you do here at RTL and so many other places. But it's actually the first time we've met in person. It is funny, isn't it? How social media connects you to someone you don't know. But I get that all the time, actually. I think I'm the girl next door in Luxembourg. So people just chat to me in the supermarkets or look in my trolley, what's in there and ask me, what are you cooking today? Oh, gosh, that's so funny and so lovely as well. And I must tell the listeners, is what you're wearing today is so beautiful, so fabulous and Christmassy. It's a beautiful tartan dress with a wonderful brooch and it's just such a happy, happy colour. So you do, you bring joy when you walk into a room, it's for sure. And just a little bit about your background for those in Luxembourg or beyond, because we do have listeners beyond Luxembourg, many of them, just to tell them a little bit about you and your bio. Anne is a TV chef and food journalist based in Luxembourg, from Luxembourg. She spent 12 years in the UK graduating with an MA in English Literature from University College London, UCL, and went on to do a postgraduate degree in journalism at City University London, specialising in food and drink writing. Two top places, I know for sure, not easy to get into. And worked as a TV producer for APTN, ZDF and RTL, and in her own words, ate her way around London as a restaurant critic for Time Out London. In 2010, she started her own food blog, Anne's Kitchen, which was awarded a Digital Food Award by Food and Wine magazine in the US in 2013 and pursued a culinary training course at Alain Ducasse in Paris in 2015. She has a regular TV show on RTL, Télé Letzburg, and has published five cookbooks. Her first in 2013 focused on British cuisine. And then there was a cookbook featuring recipes inspired by travels to Barcelona, Istanbul and Berlin, and both were awarded the Luxembourg Book Prize. Her third cookbook, Home Sweet Home, explores the cuisine of her homeland, Luxembourg, a theme which was further explored in her fourth book, Tastes of Luxembourg, which won the World Cookbook Award in 2020 and has her own wine, Anne's Pinocchio, created in collaboration with Domanka Desson. Her Luxembourg-shaped cookie cutter keeps inspiring people to bake little Luxembourg cookies at home. And on that point, some people I know might be receiving one or two little cookie cutters in their Christmas stocking. And reading about you and your bio, it just makes me smile. It's so full of passion about where you've come from. You seem to live your passion through every day of your life. So very, very lucky that you have found this. So take us back to your passion for food and cooking. I mean, you went on to study English literature, but clearly before that, (laughs) I imagine there was always this passion for food. There was always. And I mean, what you're saying, I really do count myself lucky that every day I can get up and really do the stuff I love and eat the stuff I love. Um, But food has always played a really big um, part in my life. So um, I guess as a child, I just always was excited about going to other people's birthday parties because there would be cakes and, and things and things I might have not eaten before. So I was always like looking forward to that and um, I remember I was in the scouts when I was little you know like where you do these badges you get the first aid badge or like the sports badge or something and um, 
I wasn't really keen on going to the Scouts. So I only ever did two badges in my life. And the one was um, the cooking badge. And the other one was the reporter badge. Oh, so they completely what you continue absolutely. to do, what you continue to study. Absolutely. And I have these very fond memories of these two camps that they had organized in the Scouts in Straßen, the Kierwalecken. And the one was really a cooking camp where we had um, a chef, like a chef. Yeah, it's also called a chef, the leaders, the scout leaders, who was a chef in his real life. And he taught us little kids like to make dishes that were out of the ordinary. So we made deep fried camembert with a cranberry sauce. And I, I have this distinct memory of making these camembert wedges. I think I must have been eight or nine years old. And I just felt like, wow, this there's a whole world out there of food and of interesting stuff. And of flavours yeah. and of combinations. I'm thinking perhaps your next book will be an outdoors book. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I'm not an outdoorsy <laughs> type, actually. I, I do oh. have a friend who says I should do a camping book, but I'm like, oh, my God, don't get me camping. <laughs> glamping. We call, well, for exactly. some of us, glamping is the way forward rather than the you know that. more hardcore camping. You chose to study English literature first. Yes, that was actually a bit of my Luxembourg uh, heritage style. So actually, um, people from Luxembourg are usually choosing the safe option when they go and study. I was always very interested in um, English language and literature. But at the same time, I really loved anything to do with well, food and hospitality. So when I graduated in Luxembourg, I was like standing in front of the decision to either go into um, the literature side or into hospitality to a hotel school. And I kind of thought to myself, you know what, actually, I think rather than working in hospitality, I think I want to become a journalist and tell stories through food. So become a food journalist. And my parents, who are very um, good guiders in my life, they've always guided me in my decisions. They did say, OK, well, do journalism, but study literature first, because if it doesn't work out with the journalism career, at least you can become a teacher in Luxembourg. <laughs> Which is an extremely good backup, let's say, in Luxembourg. Even at that age of 18, 19, you were still very clear in what you wanted to do and pursue. Well, I kind of had a hunch always, like I knew the passion was there, it pulled me towards it, even though I didn't know how I would get there. But I kind of went there via lots of detours. But it always infiltrated whatever I did. So even in my undergraduate in literature, I took a course called Literature and Food in Canterbury at the University of Kent. And I wrote um, a thesis on the function of food in the books of Roald Dahl. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we all know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James, James and the Giant Peach. And <laughs> exactly. And but I'm not sure if you know the adult short stories by Roald Dahl. No. They are fantastic. They're just as dark and twisted as his children's books, but with an added um, dimension of a bit of raucous, like um, adult stuff. Uh, I'm just saying um, <laughs> it gets quite sexy in some scenes and there is also quite gruesome food stuff going on. Oh, I was wondering in which way, in which capacity food was used in these scenes. As weapons as sexual things. <laughs> it's very interesting, but it's great. I mean, honestly, that's a book that I would urge people to put under the Christmas tree because they are absolutely mind-boggling, these stories. And they always are the typical Roald Dahl way, the twist in the tale. 
So whatever short story you finish, you you go like, what just happened? Wow. Well, I didn't think we'd be moving on to Roald Dahl. It feels like <laughs> it's funny because I've just finished listening to an audiobook. Actually, this is completely sidestepping here. But in fact, this author herself always had a deep passion for children's literature and actually started as an adult. Adults who love children's literature because there's such a depth to some of oh, them as there well. There is. There is. I'm also watching children's TV shows on Netflix at the moment, which is actually <laughs> funny. I don't know why, but I love Waffles and Mochi. I'm obsessed with it. Well, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's absolutely genius. I haven't, but uh, they, they, they use the word waffles in there, which uh, links back to you entirely as well. But then you have this passion also for reading and writing, which you first use, I mean, Time Out London. You say you ate yourself one. What was it like writing, being a, a restaurant critic? What's that life like? It's incredible. It is as great as um, you would think it is. So you get sent to a restaurant anonymously and uh, I would be able to like order everything off the menu I wanted, also some wine. And then afterwards, write about it. And the restaurant would never know who the actual reviewer is. So we would just get an initial. The thing about being a restaurant critic really made me appreciate the English language more because there are so many, there's such an incredible variety of vocabulary in the English language that's unrivaled or unparalleled in the Luxembourgish language, definitely. So you can really fine tune a description of a dish or of a texture or of a feeling of a mouthfeel or anything in the English language. And that's what being a restaurant critic taught me is really to discern things, to really analyze, to go beyond without being pretentious, huh? because I don't also like these people who just go to length of describing, I don't know, how a, a cherry tomato pops in your mouth. I mean, no, come on, <laughs> let's just not go there. But it really taught me that. And the funny story about how I landed at Time Out was that I had previously in my master's in journalism, taken an evening class, an extracurricular evening class in food and drink writing at City University. And one of the two teachers was Guy Diamond, who is the food and or was the food and drink editor of Time Out back in the day. And I thought, oh, if I get into that course, maybe I can do an internship with him, I get a job there. Well, so did everyone else of the 30 other students, obviously. <laughs> so it led to absolutely nothing. But Interestingly enough, a few month, a few years later, after I worked at Associated Press, I bumped into Guy Diamond in the street randomly. It's really, it's quite a funny story, actually. May I tell it to you? Please do. It's got something to do with a Thai green curry. Ah, okay. <laughs> so basically, I just... Um, and a bit of luck and yeah, serendipity. A, a lot of serendipity, actually. I think serendipity is the key word in my life in, in general. So basically, I was quite unhappy in my job at the Associated Press. I'd been a bit burned out. I felt like overworked, underappreciated. I mean, the typical signs of not being where you should be in life. And so I quit my job in the height of the recession. It was 2008. Um, Lehman Brothers had just collapsed and I decided to quit a full-time job in the biggest news agency of the world. I was completely lost in a way. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I can't stay there. And the interesting thing is then I had a conversation with a cameraman during lunch whilst we were filming and he was saying, oh, so what are you going to do next? It's great. You're leaving this company. What's up next? And I was like, well, I don't know. I might go back to Luxembourg, travel a bit and then I'll see. And he said, but what would you really like to do? And I said, well, food writing. I want to be a food journalist. And he said, oh, brilliant. Can you do that in Luxembourg? And I said, well, not really. There's not really anything, no food magazines or anything. And so he said, well, why don't you stay in London for a bit and just give it a shot? And then if it doesn't work out, you can still go back to Luxembourg. And I was like, that was like a thing, like a little stone dropping. It was like, yeah, why did I try and choose the safe option immediately? Why didn't I just go a bit adventurous and try something? 
So with that thought in mind of like, who do I know in food journalism? How can I get into food journalism in London? I walked towards the tube to go home and I suddenly had this real craving for a Thai green curry and I didn't feel like cooking <laughs> that day. So I took a detour to walk to Marks and Spencer and as I stood at the red light at the crossing, I scanned the people's faces on the other side and I see Guy Diamond standing there. And I was like, oh my God, that's the universe sending me the food and drink editor <laughs> from Time Out in the moment where I was looking for somebody in food. So I basically jumped at the guy and I was like, hi, do you remember me? I, I was in your class. And he looks at me and he goes like, yes, you're from this funny little country, aren't you? <laughs> so he did remember me. And we did go for a drink and had a long conversation. And um, he really realized that I was serious about it. So he told me just come in for an internship for a week. So I did get that internship in the end. Wow. <laughs> and the cool thing is he sat down, he got me to write some stuff in that first week. And he came one day with these papers that were full of red marks. And he said, and you remember this here, what I've got here. It's the essay you wrote or the article you wrote back in the day in my class. Can you read it again? And he said, you can see it was really not very good. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, but my English. And he said, yeah, but your English wasn't native. And he said, what you've written to me this week is absolutely top notch, proper English. You, you're a journalist. Now, let me teach you everything there is about food writing. Wow. So he took me under his wing and I worked for him for two years. How lovely. And I learned really how to write about food. That's such a lovely, <laughs> lovely story. And it, it, it just sings to me of that message that sometimes people say, when you're ready, the universe will send you a master. Yeah, I think it really is interesting. And I do, I do often when I'm stuck in things or when I'm a bit... Yeah, just worried about life in general or where things are going or not happy with the situation. Then I always need to bring myself back to that Thai green curry moment and see serendipity. It does exist. So it will come again at the right moment in the future as well for other stuff. Did you get the Thai green curry that night? I didn't because I ended up going for <laughs> drinks with Guy. And Guy and I are really good friends still to this day. So every time I'm in London, I go out for dinner with him. And um, we have not had Thai green curry together, actually. That must be done by the sounds of it. That is such a lovely, lovely story. <laughs> and, and so much came from that. So why then did you stop that writing? I didn't stop it. So I did uh, work for Time Out and I, on the side also I worked for ZDF and for others. I mean, I was freelance everywhere for those places. One thing I realized that time out about the writing was that I like writing, but I do love filming and I do love photography and I do love editing and I love everything about this job. So I thought to myself, oh, I would love to do a project or something that would encompass all of these skills. And my dream had always been from day one to at some point have a cooking TV show, you know. I was always watching English food TV and thinking, oh, I could do that, you know, I could be in front of the camera and do that stuff. There's no shortage of them. It's amazing. In the how UK, it's crazy. Huh? There are so many. It's just that wonderful. Like you said, it's the person next door. It's the kind of homely feel of it. And of course, they include the public when they have things like the Bake Off. Yes. Well, actually, funnily enough, I did apply for the very first Bake Off ever in the UK. And I got to the final 20 oh. and they took 10 people to go on TV and um, they took the 10 most boring ones, if I'm honest, because the final 20, there were like shortage tattooed girls. There were really interesting characters. And we all thought, oh, they're going to make this cutting edge, cool baking show. 
and it ended up being a really sweet, sweet show. But Mary Berry ate my tart and it didn't have a soggy bottom. So, hey. <laughs> um, for those listeners who may not know, um, she's quite famous for uh, telling people about their soggy bottoms. <laughs> I really miss that about UK TV, actually. It's just so lovely to watch a cookery show, even if you're standing there, not even sitting down mm. at the table and eating out of a pot or whatever it is. But I think that's really what influenced my, my cooking show. It's like growing up or like living in the UK for so long and then just watching all these amazing shows. I mean, obviously, Jamie Oliver is one that lots of people in Luxembourg will have seen as well. But in the UK, food TV shows are really about conveying a lifestyle, conveying happiness, conveying some kind of a... They're friends on TV. It's not like an instructional video. It's more than that. Like it's transmitting warmth and happiness. And so when I created my show, I was really, really deeply influenced by that, of course. And um, I think on the continent, they still don't do many of those shows. It's more like still the studio cooking shows generally. It's very bizarre because so much of the cooking, if we go back a few decades, would have come from the continent. Yeah. Like France, for instance, or Italy, of course, there were all sorts of old cookbooks. I can think of some written by English journalists, which come from mostly Italy or France or Spain. But your first book then was on British cuisine. <laughs> it was the first one. And then you followed up by further travels. So you've written about lots of different places, mostly European based. Where do you get the inspiration from when you're tasting something and you have to have, again, going back to your days at Time Out, you have to be neutral when testing food. How does it come to you when you think about what works for you and how do you think that would work for a bigger audience yeah. in the book writing? That's a good question because that's two different things. Yes. I mean, one of the things for me is like, obviously, I mean, whenever I go to a restaurant, I usually order the thing that sounds the most crazy or interesting. So unless I really feel like having a comforting bouche à la reine, that also <laughs> is a good classic. But generally, I always, when I travel also, especially in London, I always go to restaurants where I know they will push my food boundaries. I'll learn about new flavor combinations, about new textures, about new trends that are going on. So traveling is a big thing. But at the same time, the internet is also fantastic. I mean, social media, Instagram has, I'm always hungry every day, all the time, because I'm on Instagram all the time, just seeing what people are cooking. I also read a lot of cookbooks. So I've got a huge cookbook library. I really understand the different food writing voices out there as well and recipe approaches. Nigella is fantastic, by the way, at oh, yes. writing. I think she is just, I mean, she has a literature background, interestingly enough, as well. She is, she is really one of those people who writes incredibly well. You can read a book of hers like you read a novel. <laughs> but she's not unlike you in that nowadays to be an exceptional food personality, it touches every sense. You come with such elegance and glamour and so many food writers that I can think of have this as well and colour mm -hmm. and creativity in your own fashion sense, which you bring. So it, it flows through okay. all of the senses, I feel. And also thinking about the cookbooks that I am, um, I was going to say, look at <laughs> the photos. Yeah. The photos speak to me. That, is that very for me important. is almost more important. Than that for me from day one, it was important that my cookbooks would have a photo for every recipe. And I do take the photos myself. So um, that gives me the creative freedom as well to like do a recipe and then photograph it on that day. And not like some other food writers, they will have to cook 30 recipes in a day and get them shot all in one go by a photographer. 
So it's really all my own things. I have a huge prop collection at home. Whenever I am at a flea market, I come back with that. Or whenever I go to the recycling center in Luxembourg, I come back with more junk than I did like actually recycling. <laughs> they know me by now. They always laugh when I arrive. I need to know the name of this, <laughs> this prop set. They should go into props for films. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, no, but just going back to what you said about like, how do I then transform like when I do a recipe testing like to have it for the wider audience so I always have my audience in mind when I write recipes I always think of the typical Luxemburger who will add an ingredient say oh will I get that in the supermarket and if not then I will make a special note and say oh you'll get that in an Asia store in the frozen section for example because sometimes I do want to have a dumpling with a Luxembourgish filling in a book but I know the dumpling wrappers I know most people can't be bothered to make them themselves. So again, I wouldn't write that in the book because I'm thinking as well, like somebody wants to try this, but might be deterred or put off by a long process of making dough and rolling out each little piece. So I'm always thinking of effort. I'm thinking of availability of ingredients, but I'm still trying to get people to discover new ingredients. So I'm not completely saying, oh, I'm not going to use that. But I'm not like Otto Lenghi who would then write in like crazy stuff that you'd have to go to five specialist stores in Paris to get it or something. <laughs> and the last thing that I've really come to do lately is that I've try I'm trying to use up most of the stuff. So if I have, for example, I'm using a cream and this cream carton is 250 milliliters and I'm only using 220 milliliters in the recipe. Well, I'll rewrite the recipe so it really uses the whole one. Because I'll, I'm just always thinking it's it's a bit silly to make it. I mean, if there's standard measurements, like why not like use it all? Or I try to include also tips on what to do with like the leftover nuts from a recipe or something like that. Because I know many people have that problem. I personally do have it. When I open a cupboard, things fall out because there's so many ingredients in there because I have so much recipe testing all the time. But I've become a real pro at also using up leftovers and making leftovers shine and make amazing stuff with it. <laughs> That's such a lovely thought and such a good idea. For me, it's always the egg whites or the egg yolks, whichever one has been left <laughs> in, in a recipe, in a given recipe. That's, I think that's the most annoying one for me. And I know I ought to go and make meringues or something. But oh God, but who makes meringues? I mean, yes, a fairy tale uh, housewife does. <laughs> so with the egg white, the best thing is to actually freeze it. I always have a little um, container in my freezer and I even I write into it how many egg whites are in there and even sometimes I add another egg white into it if I have another one and then at some point at some point when I make a pavlova or meringue I'll take them out or for example I have a very good recipe on my website for Zimtsterne cinnamon stars and they are Christmas cookies and they are made with egg white uh -huh. so you could use those for oh I'll be uh, yeah well now that I have my Luxembourg cutters I, I might yeah. take out that Cinnamonsterne did yeah. you say Cinnamonsterne lovely okay well there we go there we go we'll come to Christmas <laughs> but before that a little bit more about you 2020, we had this uh, sudden lockdown. You had lots of plans like we oh all did God, for travel. Did. We're going to go here. We're going to go there, do this, that and the other. But you're at home. So we have another book, Flavours of Home. How did this come to be? Not oh. only a book, but you filmed yourself. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I was I think I was one of the busiest bees in lockdown uh, outside of the people of the health sector, of course. I mean, I thought, oh, lockdown, great. I will have time to, to um, sort out my pantry and get the mess in my house done and so on. And then 
I got a call from RTL who um, were saying like, Anne, um, we have no more journalists uh, in-house at the moment. We are desperate for content. Can you provide us with recipes? And I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No problem. And they said, great. Um, so can you film uh, a few recipes every week? And I was like, what do you mean film? <laughs> I can send you my photos. I can do that stuff, but I can't film. I can't possibly let a film crew into my kitchen. And they were like, oh, no, but you can film yourself, you know. And I said, yeah, but look, guys, I, I know how to film. I know how to film on Instagram. But to film a show properly, that it looks like there is actually a crew, that's not, not well, how, how would I do it? <laughs> and so Steve just said, Anne, sleep over it for a night. I, I think you'll figure something out and just call me back if you want to do it. And so I didn't go to sleep that night. I thought, <laughs> how do I do it? How do all the YouTubers do it? And I realized, actually, all you need is a good smartphone and a gimbal, which is like these mobile um, arms to like a film, and a lot of time. So what I did is I actually did the recipes in a way that I would set up my stepladder in my kitchen, which would serve as a tripod. I would put a few cookbooks on the stepladder so that it would have the right height. So I could put the gimbal on it to film me on a nice angle, put up some lights The as nice well. angle being not from underneath, oh my just God, for our you listeners. Got oh, I know all about those. <laughs> Absolutely. Every cameraman knows they need to be tall if they work with me. <laughs> I remember back at, uh, actually it was Channel 5, one particular newsreader being very, well, let's say she was very specific about her lighting needs and she definitely wanted two lights from underneath <gasps> as well as from Oh my above. gosh. Oh wow. I it wonder worked. what that does. It I worked. need to find out about it helps. that. It helps. It helps. All right. Anyway, to know. Back, back to, to know. the stepladder. So uh, the stepladder, I would then kind of film myself talking into the camera saying, oh, hey, today I'm making a sweet potato bake, blah, blah. Then I would go to the camera, turn it off, take the little phone and put it on my work surface. Previously, I would have said like maybe, oh, now I'm cracking an egg. I take the egg, I go to the bowl, I pretend I'm cracking it. I stop, I stop the camera, I take the camera, I put it on the table, I do a close-up shot and then I actually crack the egg. And then I stop it again, I take the camera, I put it back on the stepladder and I do my wide shot and I pretend I've just cracked the egg. So I still have the eggshells in my hand. I remove them and I say, okay, and next goes in the flour. I take the flour, I stop again. I mean, it's literally, it is stop and start. It's like the old school way of filming. Wow. <laughs> it's it's timeline. Amazing. It's, uh, it's amazing that actually you didn't buy another phone and just put both up at the same time. But then the other phone would have been in shot all the time. And like this, it ah. looks like flow. It is really, really smooth. Yes. Um, I did have an editor who edited the thing for me. Funnily enough, um, it's the son of someone who works here at RTL. And his son is actually doing the BTS in, um, in filmmaking. Fantastic. So he was sitting at home and he had nothing to do. And so he really learned on the job. And his father, Eric, told me um, that David really learned so much. He was so advanced after lockdown because he'd really learned how to do a daily production of a TV show. That's like, amazing. So it was a great teamwork. How lovely. And small team as well. And yeah, it's just amazing <laughs> what can be done in the home. So this book, Flavours of Luxembourg, which has come out of the show. Yeah. So actually, um, it was really like I ended up shooting 48 recipes, if you think about that, over the year. It was absolutely insane. And I had suddenly all these recipes and videos and I was thinking, well, this deserves a book. I mean, most of the country has seen this. So I decided to pack it all in a book. And since I had the videos, I put the QR codes with the recipes so that you can immediately rewatch the video, which was also groundbreaking for me. And in cookbooks, it's not really done yet. No, it's so very rare. That's very impressive. I was very happy that I had all these assets. Um, 
And the other thing I did is I uploaded all the videos on YouTube and I've subtitled them in English myself so that a lot of people are, who are learning Luxembourgish are actually watching it now with English subtitles. That's a really good one. We'll link to that because uh, there are a fair few of our listeners who might be in this category. Fanta- you, you've achieved so much. Do you have any time out for yourself? Oh my God, that's a good question. Well, now in December, not at all. Absolutely not. I'm actually doing a daily Christmas countdown on my Instagram so uh, you haven't seen it. It's really funny. It's um, I've decided to... I've seen the brioche one. I was looking at a brioche one the other day. I was just, uh, that was a while. That wasn't on a Christmas countdown, but I was just looking at one of the many recipes. Oh God, yeah, I have lots of recipes. That, that's but... the one that stuck with me. I was thinking, <laughs> no, not brioche. The boxer croissant, croissant, croissant one. Ah, the croissant, yeah. bread and butter That's pudding. what yeah. I was looking at, yeah. No, but what I'm doing on Instagram at the moment is that every day I'm unboxing a gift from a friend uh, a bit like an advent calendar. And the idea is it's all friends who have local shops or local makeups. And I want to inspire people to buy local gifts this year for Christmas, really to support Luxembourgish businesses. So I have friends like Lola Valerios who sent me amazing chocolates or my friends Wanderscheid who got me a homemade chutney or Manzoku Soul Food who have sake. They do like Japanese things. And so every day I have this beautiful Christmas hamper. It's a Fortnum and Mason hamper that I've converted. And I'm opening it to this really jingle bell music. And there's a present in there. And I actually have a little helper, which is a little Bambi, like a little reindeer. I call him Bami because he loves Bami noodles. And my little helper, he brings me this present and he makes sometimes a funny noise like when he likes something. It's really, it's ridiculous. You have to watch it to believe it. I actually don't know what I got myself in there. It's amazingly creative. So the idea is really to inspire people. I also show them the shop that it came from. So a bit of gift inspiration from the shop. And then at the end of every five days, and we're doing this four times, one person can win the entire hamper with the five presents from the day before, plus my wine. So it's a massive gift. <laughs> that's absolutely wonderful. Obviously not the gifts that you've used to do. <laughs> no, that's why That's why people had to give me the gift too. So when, yes. when I'm opening it and eating it, because I, I said, I can't give somebody a half-eaten Christmas tree, a chocolate <laughs> Christmas tree. <laughs> that is such a lovely, lovely thing. Ah. I, I really am so inspired by you and your energy and, and where it comes from. Where does it come from, this amount of energy and abundance of creativity? <laughs> For others. And I mean, a lot of people have creativity, but to continue to push it out to others requires another level of energy. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I think it does come a lot from my parents. I mean, my mum was a teacher. She's now retired, but in her free time... she That's was... why she thought English teachers always a good yeah, backup. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but in her free time, she was an actress. She, she took singing classes. She's a painter still to this day. She really paints and she's also doing photography. And my dad, he worked in banking and on the side, he's a, he's a pianist. And every day he sits on the piano for at least one or two hours and plays classical songs or like jazz. And it's really this household that I come from where there was always something to do. And you're never really just lazily sitting around. It's always like doing stuff and being creative, but also having a business that, I mean, a business sense. My dad, bless him, he's actually still, he's my accountant now. So he does all my accounting. Which you is are really so sweet. lucky. And my mom tests all my recipes for my books. So it's family business. This is and my sister And my sister, she, she's a teacher now. She's an English teacher. Actually. Oh my gosh, your mother got her wish. <laughs> she did. <laughs> but my sister, in her free time, she started painting during lockdown. So she actually started doing aquarelle, watercolour. Yes. And she painted my kitchen in my cookbook. So there is actually a watercolour painting of my kitchen in my cookbook. 
And from there, she actually took the project further because she was so sad in lockdown that she couldn't go out for drinks with friends that she started painting all of Luxembourgish cafes. So she's done a cafe series. So you can get Scott's Pub as a watercolour now from her. You I'll guys you are a very creative <laughs> family. It's it's quite something. This is amazing. Um, just circling back a little bit, in all of your time being a restaurant critic and now a chef yourself and a food writer of books, of your own recipes, there's somebody you might know called Grace Dent, who is a restaurant critic for The Guardian. And she is now also a critic on MasterChef back in the UK. Is she? And um, she has a podcast called Comfort Eating, which is so lovely because she brings in guests from a variety of careers and backgrounds. And she literally brings them back to what their comfort food is. Mm -hmm. I just think that's so lovely, such a lovely idea. And so for you in this wonderful creative family upbringing, what would be your comfort food? So that's a good question. There's a, there's a few things, but I know that whenever my mum asks, Anne, what would you like me to cook on, the, on Sunday? Because we always eat together on Sunday and my mum normally cooks. Whenever the question arises... I would say her cheese souffle. She makes an amazing cheese souffle that we eat with salad on the side and some roasted potatoes. And it's just the most comforting thing ever. <laughs> oh, that is. I, I have tried uh, one or two and that's probably it. Souffles in my entire life. They are amazing things. There's another way to use eggs. Yes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, and which cheese does she use in her cheese souffle? I think she uses Gruyere. I need to ask her. Uh -huh. I've tried it with cheddar once. It was delicious. There's too. a very good Stilton and broccoli one that I know. Ooh. <laughs> oh, very. Oh, that, that pushes the boat a bit, though. <laughs> well, go back to Fortnum and Mason, get your yeah. nice Stilton for Christmas. Yeah. And um, yeah. um, So coming to Christmas, it's, it's approaching very rapidly, oh as it God. always does. Uh, not only are you doing this advent calendar, but I'm sure people are just coming up for you for inspiration. And you haven't yet released a Christmas book that I know of. That's another one for the... Oh my God, yes, for yeah. the ideas. <laughs> Yeah, your shelf. Yes, I'm sure. Um, so when do you celebrate? 24th, 25th? In Luxembourg, it's traditionally always on the 24th in the evening. So it's Christmas Eve. My mum normally cooks. <laughs> again, I'm very lucky with that. But last year I tested the recipe and I've asked her if I can do that again this year, which is a um, stuffed turkey with a vine sauces stuffing. So the vine sauces is Luxembourgish sausage. And I'm actually just using, the, it's a bit like a sausage stuffing in the UK, with a bit of chestnuts and some sage and bacon and Luxembourgish mustard. And it really, really, it turned out nicely. So I want to try it again this year. And then at some point, if there is a Christmas book, it would come in. <laughs> I'm trying to think of that word in English. It was, when you say sausage stuff, stuffing, we just call it stuffing. It's stuffing. Yeah, yes, stuffing. I was thinking sausage for sausage stuff. And yeah, then but it's just stuffing. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in Luxembourg, if you say stuffing, people would look at you with blankly like, what, what is that? A pillow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I, I don't really eat meat anymore, but when I did, that was always um, a lovely thing. Actually, that's another thing. As, as a, um, a writer and as somebody observing food all the time, we see these trends mm -hmm. sometimes in food. How do you feel about various trends in food? Um, I think they can be very cool and very good if they get people cooking. Like I think earlier this year, there was this crazy feta tomato TikTok pasta. Yes, right? I, I've had it because my daughter has cooked it for me but off see, TikTok. <laughs> see, and your daughter probably would have not 
cooked uh, from like just like that but it was she saw actually it. delicious <laughs> and that's what i like so i like if it's food trends that make people like actually go in the kitchen and say oh i'm gonna try that i don't like it if it's too uh, i don't know out there or a bit silly or i can't really think of anything now that would make me cringe but there are some things where i'm also like oh come on really do we need another pancake cake or I don't know <laughs> there's things that just don't you don't need to do it I think also the problem with TikTok and Instagram and everything is that you just need to be so ahead of everything all the time or just like running after trends I'd, I'd rather do my own thing and um, not follow the trends but maybe start some trends I love that idea but also when it comes to social media how do you manage your time when you have to do all of the social media things, apart from the actual work that fills the social media. So how do you manage that or do you have help? No, I actually do everything myself. So I normally on a Monday, I sit down and I batch for the whole week. So I write all the Facebook posts in one go over a few hours and I schedule them. For Instagram, I'm actually posting as I go all the time, so I don't schedule them. But it does, it does take a lot of time. I'd say at the moment, especially now with the Christmas countdown in December, I think it's about 60% of my time goes into social media. It's insane. It is a lot of work. RTL original podcast. Yeah, but I'm not complaining because it's a part of it. I mean, it's a part of connecting with people. It's a part of making your recipes travel and other people see them. But it's, it's, it is a lot of work and it's also not healthy to be on it all the time. So what I'm trying to do is in the evenings, I'm putting aside my phone and I'm reading a book. I'm actually reading a lot at the moment because I noticed that I have too much screen time. So I love sitting down with a good book. <laughs> I've tried to do that as well. Make sure that my phone is, if I can manage it, away from me. And I certainly have a pile of books next to my bed all the time that I <laughs> dip in and out of and, and get through as I can. When I was thinking about the trends, I was actually thinking about trends such as veganism. Would you say that's a trend? I think it's a movement. It's something that people are really like getting into and maybe changing their perception of yes. eating. I don't think yes. I would not consider it a trend. I think it's really something that's a lifestyle choice for people now. I personally think it's very important to find a way to be happy with how you consume stuff. I was a vegetarian for eight years, actually, when I started when living in the UK. And uh, I love cooking vegetarian food. Couldn't really personally go vegan because I love cheese too much. <laughs> cheese and dairy, I can't live without it. I think it's great because if you go vegan now, you have an abundance of recipes online and a huge community you find on social media. So you will always, it's great to feel encouraged in that lifestyle choice. But for me, I think um, when it comes to food consumption, I don't like when it becomes too dogmatic. So when it becomes too much, you're allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. I think the most important thing is balance but also reducing your meat consumption. I'm an absolute um, absolute advocate of that as well. I think flexitarianism is the way to, to go for most people because you can still eat everything you love, but you don't need to like completely eat it all the time. That's so. a wonderful word. I love it. Flexitarianism. I, I'm gonna, That's also a trend at the moment. <laughs> I like that. Okay, I'm going to just put that word in my back pocket there. So I've nearly used up all of my time before Sang Manuda going to come knocking on the door for this studio. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. You're such a wonderful inspiration to us all. And my final question to you really is, I think with all great people, you are yourself as we see you on screen on screen and on social media. But do you reserve anything of you for off screen, off social media? Is there a you that that is private just to you and your family and friends? Oh my God, that's that's a question I've never had. 
my, my my family would probably say uh, when I'm in a, when I'm moody or something <laughs> like when I'm like oh, no, I'm so annoyed by this. <laughs> probably that's that side that sometimes get a bit annoyed with things. But I think generally what you see is what you get. I am like this. I might swear a bit more in private. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> no, but I think what you see is what you get. Which, I'm not I'm not an artificial persona. I think people who meet me in real life always go like, oh, my God, it's really you. And you really are like that. <laughs> I think that makes the best presenters of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're everything you have. You tick all the boxes. It's such a, a thrill to meet you. So thank you so much, Anne, thank for you. being here. Really, it's a delight. <laughs> I will link to all of your various feeds there's so many of them that you keep up with I don't know how you do it also I will put a link to your books uh, many of them of course and dear listeners we'd love to hear from you I'm sure Anne and myself would love to hear about your traditions that you have for Christmas and particularly any recipes because I know we have listeners from all over from so many countries so recipes that you enjoy making over the festive period we'd love to hear them and maybe see photos of them as well and uh, we can send them to Anne yes Definitely. I'm in. I want to try stuff. I mean, like visually try it and then try it at home in my kitchen. Absolutely. It's just so lovely to... I, I, I've become very interested in people's traditions mm-hmm. and, and how important they are as, as we get older. So you can always get in touch uh, through social media. We've said that before. Through RTL. And I'd love you to subscribe to the series and let me know what you really think. And you can always email me privately or openly. And I will always try to reply when I can. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.